0: beginning in verse 45. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. They have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. This is God's word. You may be seated. If you were with us last week, I brought up the point how one of our default positions as human beings is to ask questions. We're hardwired to do that, but in a lot of contexts, whether you be you walk in the door here Sunday morning, you go to somebody's house for a meal, or you go to any kind of event, or you just do anything, one of the questions that is easy to roll off of our tongues is, what do I need to do? What must I do? Again, I think particularly when you go into somebody's house, that's one of the first questions that rolls off the tongue, how can I help? What do you need help with? What can I do to help you finish the meal, get... The house cleaned up, set the table. What do I need to do? We can ask that in the church sometimes. What do I need to do? And a lot of times when we ask that, we're we're primarily thinking about physical actions we can do with our hands and with our schedules. For example, you know what? What do I need to do? You need to read the Bible for 10 minutes every day in the morning. What do I need to do? You need to pray for these two prayer requests every single day. What do I need to do? Well, you need to give... $100 to this missions cause. We thrive and we like those specific, concrete examples of tangible things that we can do with our hands and with our schedules. Those are good things to do, but sometimes, I would say all the time really, what God calls us to do is to focus on the heart, because God cares about the internal actions of the heart. Not just merely what you do with your hands and with your schedule, but what you do in your heart. Let me explain. One of the parenting phrases that I've been thrown around recently with J.D. and Annalyn in particular is that classic phrase, and I say it jokingly, I'm not, I hope you know I'm not being super serious with this, but that, that phrase, you're going to go to bed, and what's the end of it? You're going to like it. You're going to finish your food, and you're going to like it. Because we don't want our kids to just make their bed. We don't want them to just finish their food, physically speaking, with their actions. We want them to enjoy it, to appreciate it, to do, to have a good attitude, a good posture of their heart as they engage in these actions. Right? And it's the same when it comes with the Lord. He doesn't just merely want us to go through the motions. He doesn't just want you to merely put money in the plate or walk in the door Sunday morning. Good things to do, good actions to do, but Jesus cares about what goes on in the heart, the internal actions of the heart. So in our text today, Jesus warns us concerning the nature of the heart, but he warns us against, number one, dangerous influences that can greatly impact us, but also, number two, he encourages us to give generously from the heart. And as we walk through the Gospels, you have to remember, we're not merely looking at Jesus to study him in an academic sense. That is not at all the way we should approach Scripture. The reason we are walking through Luke, slowly but surely, is so that we might see Jesus. We might get a clear picture of who he is. We might understand what he did, what he came to do, what he promised, what he spoke. But also, perhaps most importantly, how do we then live in light of that truth? How do we then submit our lives to this king? How do we honor this Lord who has come into the world? How do we restructure and order our lives to honor and worship and bless and serve the king of kings? Because as we follow the king, as we submit to his authority, as we listen to his words, only then will you and I be able to experience the abundant life. And when I say that, I'm not talking about a financially prosperous life. By abundant, I mean a life filled with the Spirit of God, a life filled with the fruit of the Spirit, of His love, His joy, His peace, patience, so on and so forth. Only when we submit to Him, only when we follow Him, do we experience that full abundant life in the Spirit. So church, as you and I, as we strive to faithfully follow this King, faithfully follow Jesus, two points for you today. Number one, we must beware of wrongdoing. And number two, we must be generous with our giving. And primarily, these two encouragements, these two actions, these two commands are uh, concerning your heart. So let's walk through the text and unpack it. Beginning in verse 45. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, verse 46, Beware of the teachers of the law. Now, stop right there. This is the first command. It's an explicit, implicit command. Beware. It's an active thing that the people, that the disciples should be doing. Beware of the teachers of the law. It's the first command Jesus spoke since uh, Luke chapter 20, verses 20 to 26, where Jesus famously said, Give to Caesar. What is Caesar's? So here we have another explicit command, beware the teachers of the law. Now the Greek word there for beware, it means to be on guard against. It means to be careful. It means to pay attention, to watch out for. So if you were in Shenandoah National Park on Skyline Drive, you see a sign that says beware of bears. That sign doesn't just merely mean Look for them physically. Just keep your eye out and just, oh, look, there's a bear. Cool. The reason that sign is there is keep your eyes out for them to stay away from them. Right? Because they're dangerous. They can approach you. They can be aggressive. Beware of bears. So Jesus is saying, beware of the teachers of the law. Now, is Jesus talking about staying away from all teachers of the law? Pick this apart a little bit. Let me ask, you ask it again. Are all the teachers of the law bad in Jesus' day and age? It's not necessarily a trick question. No, they're not. Not every single one. Because in modern day ears, this Jesus might be akin to saying, beware of the pastors. Are there some bad pastors? Of course. There are some good ones. All right, so teachers of the law. It's not all of them are bad because, for example... John chapter 3. You might know that chapter because of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, an expert in the law. Yet we see that there was humility in his heart. Also in Acts chapter 15, verse 5, we see that some of the very first Christians, some of the very first converts to Christianity were Pharisees. And they remained Pharisees after their conversion. The most clear example of that is the Apostle Paul. In Acts 25 and also, I believe, in Philippians, Paul still identifies himself as a Pharisee. So, not necessarily all of them are bad. But, what about the bad apples then? What about those teachers of the law who are bad? Is Jesus then saying, keep 100 feet away from them? Don't ever look them in the eye? I don't think so. Because, you have to look at his own life and example. In Luke chapter 7, verse 36, Jesus himself dined with a Pharisee in his own house. And later on, we find in Luke chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus dined in a, with many Pharisees, and there were many experts, many teachers in the law who were sitting around the table for that meal. So is Jesus saying literally keep physical distance 100 feet from all the teachers of the law? No, Jesus is talking about an attitude of the heart. He's talking about having a discerning, sharp eye, a sharp mind, a sharp heart that notices error and wrongdoing and hypocrisy. Stay away from it. Now, you notice the descriptions that Jesus talks about. With the exception of devouring widows' houses, which is in verse 47, which I'll get to in a moment, none of those explicit descriptions are bad at face value. For example, it's not necessarily bad to walk around in a flowing robe or, in our day and age, to walk around in a nice suit. It's not necessarily bad to be greeted with respect. For somebody to refer to you as Mr. or Mrs. or Doctor or Yes Sir, No Sir, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to sit at a seat of honor, per se. When you go to a wedding Typically, right? The, the head table is reserved for the bride and groom, the bridal party. It's not a bad thing if they invite you to come sit at that head table with them. Not necessarily. And it's also, uh, contrary to what you might think, it's not necessarily a bad thing to pray lengthy prayers. So, what is Jesus talking about? Well, the heart of the problem, I, I've said this before, but it's, it's true. The heart of the problem here is the problem of their hearts. Because in the midst of all these actions that they were doing, right, they're walking around in flowing robes. They like to do that. They love to be greeted with respect. They love to have the most important seat in the synagogues, in the places of honor, at banquets. The problem was this. These scribes, these Pharisees, these teachers of the law were looking to human beings for their fulfillment, for their purpose, for their identity, for their praise, for their joy. They were looking to human beings to fill that need in their heart that only the Lord can provide. Say it conversely. Instead of looking to God Almighty for his satisfaction, for his fulfillment, for his praise, for the purpose that he gives, instead of being satisfied in that, they look to human beings to fill that void in their heart. We all have it. We all are tempted to fill it with other people. But only God Almighty can fill that part of our hearts. And when that happens, when you look at people from a prideful state, what happens? Well, pride and greed start to stir up in you, it starts to grow. And the fruit of that, in the most ugly form, is that you start to look at people for what you can get out of them. You no longer look at people as human beings created in the image of God, whom God has called you to bless and to serve. You start to look at people, what can I get out of them? Particularly, you look at the vulnerable, the weak, the helpless, in this case, widows, and you, and you take advantage of them. Because that's what is exactly what they were doing. Verse 47, they devour widows' houses. We don't know explicitly what That meant or what they were looking like. The the Bible doesn't explicitly say, but some commentators have suggested uh, perhaps when a a widow lost her husband, uh, all the the estates and assets and whatnot are in her name. Back in the day, and even today to a degree, widows struggle, can have a struggle both financially and regarding a legal standing, back then more so. So, Widows, in order to survive, to to have food, to figure out how to manage their home and whatnot, they relied upon the mercy and the goodwill of the religious leaders. They they were supposed to, and God called them many times in the Old Testament, you read it, God called them to care for the widow and the orphan. But instead of caring for them, perhaps when the widows went to them for help, they charged them fees, exorbitant fees, for their legal advice. Or maybe as they were figuring out and managing some of the assets, maybe they pocketed some of the money themselves without the widow being aware of it. We don't know exactly how, but the point is these men were corrupt. They were vile. They did not find their satisfaction, their identity in God, and so they tried to find it. They looked to other people to find that happiness and that fulfillment and that joy. And this is important. When you do not, find your satisfaction and your purpose in the Lord, you will always view other people in a utilitarian mindset, meaning, what can I get out of them? And today, right, let's bring it to modern day context. You might not be, you might read this and you might think, you know, I really don't have a temptation to wear flowing robes or make lengthy prayers in public so people praise and applaud me. Uh, None of that's my temptation. You're losing sight of what Jesus is condemning. Jesus is condemning our proclivity, our temptation to look to people for what only God can bring. Let me give you a tangible example of what this looks like in a, in a small scale. Sometimes in life when I have enough goodwill from my own heart, I want to clean the bathroom at my house, okay? I want to scrub the toilet, I want to wipe it down, I want to wipe down the sink, I want to brush up the bathtub, all right? Part of it, part of the motivation is because, yeah, I, like everybody, we enjoy a clean bathroom, but honestly, part of it, if I clean it, I do it, and let's say the day goes by, hours go by, and let's say Megan hasn't said a word to me about it, what do I do? Hey, just want to let you know, I uh, cleaned the bathroom earlier today, what am I doing? I'm fishing for praise. I'm fishing, I'm looking for that appreciation, that respect, that gratitude, that praise from other people. Now, you have to understand me, right? It's not a sinful thing to desire appreciation. My point is, if that mindset is left unchecked, it can infect and grow in a much more great scale, grand scale as is exemplified right here. Because the point is, there's a temptation inside all of us that when we do works, particularly good works, we want others to see us and even to praise us. We'll get to that in a little bit regarding the giving aspect. But how many times do we want other people, we will never admit it, you never admit this kind of thing. It's one of those deep attitudes of the heart. We do good works, we want to do good works, so that the pastor might give you an attaboy, so that your spouse might say, hey, thank you so much, so that you fill in the blank, so that your boss might, you know, you you work hard, so that your boss might give you an extra raise. You don't just work to work hard. The temptation is to find our identity, our full fulfillment and satisfaction from what other people say, from the praise, the glory of other people. And when we don't find that in the Lord, we will always have a, prideful view of ourselves, and we will have a low view of others, looking to exploit them and take from them what only God can truly give to us. So, church, two two kind of practical things. Number one, be on your guard actively against pride, against greed, against lust, and stay away from people who exemplify these traits. But also, guard your own heart. Because Christianity is not just about stay away from all the bad out there. That's kind of part of it. But it's also, hey, watch your own heart. Because your own heart is prey to these very temptations. So guard your own heart. And the way to do that isn't just by saying no, no, no all the time. But by saying yes to the good. Fill your heart with what is good, with what is true. It's Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about, dwell on these things, ponder these things, store up your heart with these things. And the most simple, crystal clear way to do that is by being in the Word. Fill your heart with the truth of God's Word, with the praise, the glory, the beauty here, so that you're not tempted to look to people and to use them to fill what only God can give you. So that's the first component, beware of wrongdoing. But Christianity, you know, it's not just about rejecting the bad, it's also about embracing and practicing the good, and that's where chapter 21, verse 1 begins. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. Let me give you a little bit of context right here. The temple the center hub of Jewish life. In the temple, it's not just a building. It's the place where ministry took place. Where the work of ministry took place. And it required a lot of financial support. 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 4. We see in the Old Testament, it's not just a New Testament practice. In the Old Testament, we see people bringing many different types of offerings and gifts. Dedicating them for service, for usage in the temple. For example... One commentator pointed out the different vessels that were used in the temple for worship, whether it be the bowls, the cups the the tables all these kinds of things. The different vessels were required by law by the Torah to be made of gold and silver. so guess what they cost money in addition to that, there are many stocks many many stockpiles of of priceless curtains of priestly garments that needed to be expertly and finally made with fine fabric. There were many stores of flour, oil, grain, wine, incense, and other valuable commodities that needed to be upkept. You know, upkeep. There's a lot of diff- just different moving components to the work of ministry in the temple. And so, many people would bring their gifts, their money, their finances to support this good work. Now the text says Jesus looked up he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. Verse two, he also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. And the the two coins there, in the original language, it's, it's called a lepta. And one lepta was roughly worth one-eighth of a penny today. One-eighth of a penny. So literally cents. I mean, how often... Do you look at a penny and you just walk by? Oh, that's not worth bending over and picking up. This is less than that. Jesus sees this. And it's interesting, though, that Jesus, this is another revelation that Jesus is God himself. Because Jesus sees the attitude of the heart going on here. And he also takes notice of the weak. Those who are overlooked. Those who, according to the world, she's not doing anything. Why is she even here? She shouldn't even bring that. That's that's an insult to what I'm giving. You know, I'm giving thousands of dollars to this. She she shouldn't even be here. She shouldn't be on the same level as us. But Jesus sees her and notices her and exalts her as he instructs his disciples. This is in contrast to verse 47. Because some people wonder, how do these two kind of passages uh, correlate with one another? How do they fit? Well, in verse 47, the widows were being adva- taken advantage of. They were being trampled upon. But here, Jesus exalts the action, the heart of this widow and brings her honor and esteem. I love what one pastor said here. This lady, this woman, this widow, she was not changing the world by giving these sins. Nobody saw what she was giving. Nobody took notice of her and certainly nobody was going to write her a thank you note for that big donation she gave. Nobody was going to do that. She was merely being faithful with what the Lord had given her and so pleased God through her faithfulness. The world paid no attention to this lady, but the Lord himself, the only person who matters, he sees, he cares, and he is pleased with what she does. This is God's economy. It is not the economy of the world. Because as you read in Luke chapter 6, the the equivalent of the uh, Sermon on the Mount in Luke, Luke chapter 6, we find those, this is what God's economy is like. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the godly, for though they are scorned, ridiculed, persecuted, though the world belittles them and bemoans them today, at the end of time, they will be exalted. They will be raised up. They will be honored and praised amongst all people. This is God's economy. And this is in stark contrast to the way the world operates when it comes to giving and and financial giving. Because think about it. How often when it comes to giving, is it correlated to the acclaim or the benefits we get out of it? For example, how many of you, just be honest, how many of you have had that attitude? You know, I can give X amount to this church or to this nonprofit because, hey, it's a tax write-off for me. Helps me with my taxes. Or, you know, I'll give to this charity, but I'm doing it because I get to be entered into the sweepstakes to meet this famous celebrity. Or, you know, I'll give to this, this good cause uh, or this new um, building project as long as I get my name on it or I get my name on the donor board wall. I'm guilty of, of some of those things, okay? I'm not saying it's, it's all you. The point is, if nobody sees you, if you get no acclaim, no praise, no recognition for the gifts that you give, would you still do it? Would you still do it? And that's what Jesus is getting at. And I think Jesus is stressing here the posture of your heart when it comes to giving. Because some people, they read this, and and there's a couple different ways people interpret this in terms of what is the main meaning that Jesus is communicating. Some people think uh, that the measure of your giving isn't determined by what you give, per se, but it's about by what you still have afterwards. Okay, there's some wisdom there. Some people think that truly giving to the Lord means giving literally everything. As Jesus sometimes talked about, you know, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and follow me. Some people think that's the intention here. It's a literal kind of understanding. I'm of the mindset that Jesus is addressing the issue of the heart, the posture of your heart. Because if you give, if you only have $5, and you give $1 of that, versus somebody who has $200,000 and gives 10000 you see, you you might not be great at math. You know that percentage is off. They gave 20% versus somebody who knows math can do better than me right now. Okay? Jesus cares about the posture of your heart when it comes to giving. I love what one person said. The world cares about quantity, but the Lord cares about quality of your giving. Think about it when it comes to taxes, tax season. I know we just are out of that. When it comes April time. The government could care less if you give hesitatingly or with resistance or with eagerness or with joy. They could care less what your attitude is. What do they care about? You better make sure your money, all of it, is in on time. That's all they care about. But it's not so when it comes to the Lord. He's not interested in the bottom line. He's interested in the posture of your heart. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3, explicitly and beautifully describes it. If I give all I possess to the poor, but do not have love in the process, I am nothing. So church, kind of the application point, the the big takeaway, be generous in your giving. Be generous in your giving. And I'm not talking about, you have to understand me, I'm not necessarily talking about put more in the plate. And I also hope you know, I'm not begging you for money, and if the Lord is prompting you to give, I would be happy if you gave to a good, solid, Christian, gospel-preaching, Bible-centered ministry. It's not about making Hillsborough bigger and better, although I do believe there's wisdom in starting locally and then expanding, so on and so forth. I think there's wisdom in that. But be generous in your giving. And by that I mean the posture of your heart. Second Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7. It's famously read during uh, kind of offering time. Rightly so, each of you should give what you, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So, all right, you might be saying, "All right, Jimmy D, okay, I got you. It's about the heart. It's not necessarily about a dollar amount in in this context." Uh, so then, how do I cultivate that good posture in my heart? How do how do I cultivate that cheerful? loving, eager heart that wants to give and wants to give more. I encourage you, recognize and rejoice in the generous gospel message of Christ. Recognize and rejoice in how generous God has been to you, firstly and foremostly. God never calls you to do anything that he himself has not already done for you. Let me say that again. God never calls you to do anything that he himself has not already done for you. So when he calls you to be generous, to give of yourself, to give your finances, your time, your energy, your money, to give, it's because he first gave to you. Though he was rich in heaven and the glories, the perfection of heaven, he gave it all away, came down, made himself poor, and even more than that, he poured out his life for the, so that you and I could experience the richness of. Of his abundant life. Though he had the closest relationship to the Father, he is the one who experienced abandonment, separation, so that we could have access and presence in his presence. So, when, church, let me wrap all this up. When you find your fulfillment in Christ, when you see how gener- generous. He has first been to you. Then you'll look at people, not for what you can get out of them, but for what you can give to them. That's a simple, powerful lesson that my dad taught me growing up. Don't look at people for what you can get out of them, but for what you can give to them. And that's rooted in the heart of God. But the only way that you can do that, the only way you can have that proper attitude, that perspective, and you can consequently. Live a good, righteous life with your actions and with your schedule. The only way you can do that is if you first find fulfillment in Christ and if you first see how generous He has been to you. Only then will you be able to look at other people for what you can give to them and for how you can be generous to the Lord's purposes. Church, the very last verse is Proverbs 4.23. might know this one. If you don't, this is a good memory verse for you. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. It's not above all else, give more money. Above all else, keep your physical distance from people who might be a little sinful or, or, or pretty hypocritical. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do, the way you interact with people, the way that you conduct and look at your finances, the way that you look at your time, all of that will flow from the condition of your heart. And the condition of your heart has to be shaped by the gospel. By how much Christ loves you, how, much, how generous he's been toward you, because that's the antidote to cure the sinful dispositions that you and I have. The sinful temptations that you and I have. So let's pray, church, and then we'll We'll close with the doxology. Our Father, may your kingdom come. Jesus, may we delight in your love. In spirit, may we stand upon the truth of your word. All for your glory.